Listen to the patient. She is telling you the diagnosis is a familiar quote. I wonder what Dr. William Osler, the author of that quote, would think today as the doctor-patient communication is hampered by technology and our crowded schedule. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you're listening to the Book Club on ReachMD. And with me today is Dr. Danielle Ofri, Associate Professor of Medicine at New York University School of Medicine and the author of the well-received recent book, What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear. Thank you very much, Doctor, for joining us today. I'm glad to be here. What prompted you at this particular time to write this book? So this book grew out of my previous book, What Doctors Feel, How Emotions Affect the Practice of Medicine. I was interested in writing about how doctors and patients can become friends, and I found a blog of a doctor in Atlanta who had befriended a patient, and I interviewed her, and she told me about a very challenging patient, a young woman with kind of a mystery illness, but the issue was that the patient kept wanting more and more aggressive treatments, and the doctor was very nervous about toxicity and harm. Anyway, after the conversation, I saw in the doctor's blog comments from someone who appeared to be that patient, who was very open with her name and her diagnosis, and so I sent her a note, and she was happy to talk as well, and so I interviewed her. And the story she told was so different from the one the doctor told. I almost had this image of a, a movie where you film with two different cameras at two different angles, or sometimes it was like two different movies all together. And it wasn't that one was smarter, had more facts, both were intelligent, thoughtful, self-deprecating, yet they saw it completely differently. The patient described it as we're in the rowboat rowing in the opposite direction. So I thought and this would make an interesting way of looking at patient issues. Unfortunately, it got cut from the last book, so it became the kernel of the future book, entitled What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear. You know, you, you say you're prompted by talking to a patient. So when we read your book, and I have and really enjoyed it, and most of our audience are doctors or people in healthcare. But is your book really geared only for doctors, but can patients learn a lot from this book? The book is geared toward general audience, doctors and patients. And the reason I want to have that broad reach is that for starters, we're all patients, even those of us who are doctors and nurses, at some point in our life, no matter what we do, we will be patients or we'll be taking care of our children or older parents. So it's meant for patients as well as doctors. I think there's much that patients can learn. I think it helps patients understand the perspective of the doctors, where they're coming from, the demands of the electronic medical record, for example, and how that interferes with communication. If we do become better in conversations and hearing the stories and incorporating them, is there evidence that this is really going to lead to better clinical outcomes? And if so, why? It's an interesting question. In fact, there is evidence. It's, the field is still growing. But for example, there's a wonderful study that deals with low back pain, which is probably the most common thing I see every day in my general practice. And once we exclude the very rare serious causes of back pain, you know, 99% is just ordinary muscular pain. And the treatment of choice is physical therapy. And when I send my patients for physical therapy, I think of it in terms of the exercises they'll learn, maybe massage, ultrasound, and sometimes electrical nerve stimulation. But I don't think about it in terms of how the physical therapists communicate. So this study used about 200 patients with back pain who were seeing physical therapists and receiving this low-dose electrical stimulation. For half the patients, they got the actual treatment, the machine. The other half got sham treatment. Machines all set up but it's never turned on. 
And interestingly, those patients with the machine not on had a 25% reduction in their pain score. So pretty good for placebo. But when the machine was turned on, they had 45% reduction. So the machine actually works. But then they divided the physical therapists into two groups. And half the physical therapists were told to remain quiet. And the other half were encouraged to make conversation with their patients, to ask them about their pain, see how it impacts their lives, to be optimistic that their pain would get better, and to really have a lot of eye contact, touch, and work on a therapeutic relationship. So the patients who got the active physical therapist but no machine at all had a 55% reduction in pain. Right? That's even more than the machine itself. The machine probably cost $50,000. And, of course, the patients who had both the active machine and the active therapist had a 75% reduction in pain. But we can see that just the way we communicate can relieve pain, and that's the name of the game. You know, when I read this part in your book, I thought about my practice and how I often would write instructions on a prescription pad. In other words, I didn't only use my prescription pad to write prescriptions. I would write such things as exercise instructions or diet instructions and hand the patient this prescription. I always had a feeling it carried tremendous weight. And this was proved by occasionally meeting people on the street who would reach into their wallet years later and pull out my now yellow prescription pad and tell me that they looked at this prescription many times during the year. The force of suggestion and how the instructions are given just carry so much weight that doctors often don't realize. And your particular research, or the research that you described, certainly you know confirms this. I think this is something that healers and shamans and witch doctors have known for millennia. And the truth is doctors, too, have always had things that could do anything like antibiotics or antiplatelet agents or chemotherapy. Conversation is really the bulk of what we had, and often it was extremely effective. Patients may get better by themselves, but also reassuring patients, letting them know that you're there for them, can lower their cortisol levels, lower adrenaline levels, raise endorphin levels. And these are all biochemical mechanisms that can relieve pain, lower blood pressure, and have many salutary health benefits. Part of that same answer is a description or a term that, that I've used but have never known it's had a name. It's called the narrative listener about what goes on and how you respond. Could you tell us what that really means? Well, the way I think about the listener is when the research and communication first began, there was a basic idea of there was a speaker kind of at a podium, and they had something to say, and they would pack their information into a little basket send it out in a zip line to the person at the other end of the, you know, the back of the audience, and they received it. And if you think about the doctor-patient, we expect the patients to give us the information they know, and we receive it very passively. As the information is not good, we say, oh, the patients are a poor historian. They don't really know the facts of the case. But there's quite a lot of data to suggest that the listener, in this case the doctor, can improve the quality of the story by more attentive listening. And when studies are done that use listeners who are distracted in different ways, the story the narrator is telling actually falls apart. And you can imagine a patient's talking about something very sensitive, very concerning and important, and the doctor is on the computer or looking something up or answering a page, the story then begins to fall apart. And, and of course, the story is the most important diagnostic tool. And if the story falls apart, then we're going to make diagnostic errors. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the book club, Reach MD, and I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Picker. And joining me today is Dr. Danielle Ofri, who is the author of the well-received 
recent book, What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear. Uh, Doctor, do you think this talent or interest or part of the exam that we call the conversation can be taught? I think there's quite a bit that can be taught, and, and I put it in a similar class as things like multicultural awareness or empathy, I think communication skills as well, are things that I believe that most of our medical students actually have to a reasonably good degree. And what happens is we kind of stamp it out of them over the course of the training. So one of our biggest jobs as educators is to preserve those native good skills that our students come to us with. But it's also, there are simple skills that can be taught. So for example, many students and you know long-term practitioners are overwhelmed by how much there is to do in the course of the 15-minute visit. With the electronic medical record, there's so much to document and it can take so long, you are really forced to be writing while the patient is there, which of course decreases the conversation. So my advice is to take the first one minute and not look at the computer, not write anything, and not interrupt and let the patient speak for one full minute, what I call full frontal listening, eyes focused, body language focused, and let the patient talk. Because as you probably know, doctors interrupt on average the first eight to 10 seconds. And one minute may not sound like a lot, but in fact, a full minute of fully attentive listening is quite a bit. And most patients can get what they need on the table in that minute. But more importantly, you've established that you are listening hard, that what they say is important, and you're catching what they say. And it's a small skill, and it's an investment in the bank because you'll have better communication as the rest of the visit goes on. You know, something that I know will be familiar to everybody who practices medicine, why is it and what can we do about it after a long visit? It can be longer than 15 minutes. It can be a half hour. That as the patient feels that the visit is coming to a close and you get up to walk to the room and put your hand on the door after really spending what you think is a lot of time and sitting, the patient then tells you the real reason that they have come. Why do they do it? What can we do to avoid it so that right from the start or early on in the visit, this important issue that they've been thinking about for days can be brought out into the open? Right. We call this the hand-on-the-doorknob phenomenon. It's well-known. It's happened to all of us. And it's interesting. What have we not done in the visit to let the patient be comfortable enough to bring that up? So I think for patients, before they come to the visit, to think hard about what they want to bring up. And to be realistic, right, if you come with a list of 50 things, then you're going to guarantee a very superficial treatment of each one. But one to two or maybe three things you want to bring up, make sure that important one is there. And maybe you want to say up front, there are three things I want to make sure we get to today, and here they are. Now, often that last thing that people do with the doorknob is a very uncomfortable thing. And maybe it's domestic violence or a sexual issue or eating disorder, psychiatric issues, socioeconomic, things patients don't feel comfortable bringing up. So then it's our job as the doctors and nurses to create the environment. So one thing, when a patient finishes, I always say, is there anything else you want to talk about? So invite that. I remind patients that our room is confidential. And then the last thing, I find that often those things will come out during the physical exam. And while the physical exam maybe has a bit less utility than in the past because we have easy access to CAT scans and uh, echocardiograms, and they were not as good as we used to be, but nevertheless, the physical exam is a bit of a refuge from technology because we're only talking and touching with nothing and no computer in between, no phone, which is a very rare thing in medicine and in life in general to be 
uh, connecting without technology. And there's a certain amount of an intimacy that's created. And I'm talking about a non-romantic intimacy, but intimacy nevertheless. And any intimacy changes the dynamics. And countless times, that's when a patient, when they're being touched and more relaxed, may be able to say the more difficult things they couldn't say sitting at the desk with a computer between us. And yet professionals are now writing in the literature about doing away with the physical exam. So this is an interesting kind of response to that. I remember making rounds with senior attending and how, not during the physical exam, but often while talking to them, they touch their hand, they touch their shoulder, and how the response of the patient was so meaningful and often a conversation by just touching would take a whole different viewpoint or a different avenue. It's something that we've forgotten about, about how important the human touch and the empathy that doctors should be showing. And bringing up the word of empathy, how important is in the conversation a doctor mentioning their empathy or even their self-disclosure about themselves or their own family? Well, I don't think the self-disclosure part is really necessary, but I think the empathy is conveyed by attentive listening. When someone listens to you well and asks questions that demonstrate that they've heard what you said, that in itself conveys empathy. I'm interested in your experience of what's going on with you. I want to know. It's the clinical curiosity that we demonstrate that. Empathy is not conveyed when we're looking at the computer or typing while our patients speak. So I think we can convey that. And sometimes, you know, specific terms, you know, wow, that sounds like it must be very difficult, you know. I'm so glad you're telling me. Can you tell me a little bit more? I want to understand. Those are ways that convey listening and empathy together. We would be remiss in this conversation to not touch on the whole subject of malpractice and malpractice events. That research shows that good communication reduces the incidence of malpractice. And even saying, I'm sorry, doesn't necessarily lead to a malpractice suit. Could you tell me a little bit about how communications can resolve some of the malpractice events even before they take place, or I should say, even before the malpractice suit takes place. If you look at the data on malpractice suits, in fact, nearly half of them, or even more, are related to communication issues. An actual malpractice of medicine is a rarity in malpractice suits. Usually, the patient feels they haven't gotten information, or things are withheld, and they can't get answers, and that's why people sue. So being upfront is very helpful. And as a patient, there's been some simulation studies that ask the question, if your doctor tells you about an error they did, you know, to you even inadvertently, and it didn't harm you, or even if it did harm you, are you more or less likely to change doctors? And the majority of patients were less likely to change doctors because they felt that, boy, my doctor's honest with me. So now I can, I can rest assured if anything happens, I know it'll be straight with me. And that guarantee of honesty means a lot. So acknowledging when things go wrong and offering a genuine apology can avert many malpractice suits. Certainly the whole movement that is pushing for open acknowledgement, apology, and in many cases a settlement you know, with a hospital averts many suits because most patients just want the record to be clear. They want the errors fixed, and they don't want to go to court. Either. Their malpractice case is just as miserable for a patient as for a doctor and doesn't change the outcome. So good communication can avert many malpractice suits. And very often they want to hear that, by their complaint, a change will be made. That's really what they want. In a way, they're saying, I want my day in court, not the real court, but I want you to hear my viewpoint. Very often patients will say, you know, my viewpoint was not taken seriously. They didn't understand 
my perspective. And I think that's very often what patients, you know, want to hear. You know, many of our listeners are nurses. And in my practice, it has gone on many years, it was not uncommon for a nurse to tell me something about my patient that I had known much longer than the nurse in the hospital, and yet they had obtained valuable clinical information that I somehow had missed. What was it about the relationship between the nurse and the patient that added so much to the story that I hadn't heard? Well, you can see it in the patient's room. Most doctors will stand at a distance from the bedside, kind of arms crossed, and most nurses come in close, and they'll touch and be much more physically closer and verbally closer. And if you ask patients, often patients do not know the name of their doctor in the hospital, but they all know the name of their nurse. And I think that's telling in the conversational skills that nurses use, and I think use with clinical accuracy that these conversations aren't just chit-chats, but they are actually evaluations of the patient's clinical status. Yeah, I, I can see that. And that night, and when you talk about the doctor and not knowing their name, you could be nowadays taking care of a patient for 30 years, and then when they're the sickest, they have a very well-trained hospitalist who is suddenly thrown into taking care of the patient and hasn't had the opportunity to hear their very long story. I can't leave without saying that one of the excellent literary reviews is the Bellevue Literary Review, which you are intimately involved in. I encourage our listeners to uh, Google it, listen to it. It involves poetry and literature written by physicians, about physicians and their patients. And before leaving today, so many areas in our society now recognize the story, how important it is to learn our stories of our past, our ancestors, story corp, we all, or I do, I listen to frequently. And it isn't a time now to bring back this into our relationship with patients. It certainly looks like it's going to lead to better medicine and probably enrich the lives of both patients and physicians. I want to thank you very much for joining us today. I encourage everybody to read this book, Patients and Doctors, as this book will help us really prepare for our next visit with our doctors. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.